students. Today we're going to talk about Dante's The Divine Comedy 2019, Lecture 14, The Deceitful Count, Slurs, Schismatics, Falsifiers, and The Descent to Dis. We're going through Cantos 26 to 31, so buckle up, we have to go fast. Alright, we begin with a quote. Our seventh piece of direct address, it is, Be joyous, Florence. You are great indeed, for over sea and land you beat your wings through every part of hell your name extends. There's a bit of irony by Dante. What he is doing is um, a congratulating Florence on the fact that there are Florentines in every circle of hell that he looks at. Which means that Florence is a terrible place, a place like a living hell, precisely because of the fact that those people who are living in Florence are the people that are filling hell at this point. And so, he is being deeply ironic. It would be like, congratulations, your team just lost every single game. That is essentially the sort of scornful derision he is sharing at his hometown. So, Florence is well known for having many people in hell at this time, which means Florence is not a particularly uh, good place in Dante's opinion, which makes sense given the fact that they had exiled him recently. Alright, in any case, let's talk about the deceitful counselors. Cantos 26-27, Volja 8 out of 10 in Circle 8. They are the deceitful counselors, sometimes called the false counselors. Their punishment is to be encased entirely in burning flames. This is the third or maybe the fourth or maybe the fifth time we've seen people getting burned. Let's see, we've seen boiling pitch amongst uh, the baritors, the fifth circle or sub-circle ditch of circle eight. We've seen simoniacs in the third ditch having their feet lit on fire amongst the heretics in circle six. We saw them in burning tombs. And then even in Circle 7, Sub-Circle 1, we had people boiling in blood. So now we have people actually burning in flames. This is perhaps the most hellish or infernal punishment that there is in the Inferno. And so the sinners we meet here are two that we know well, Diomedes and Ulysses, from the Iliad as well as the Aeneid, as well as the Odyssey last year. And then one new guy, and of course he is a Florentine, Guido de Montefeltro, who has a very interesting uh, drama play out at the end of his life, a drama very similar to what we will see in Canto 3 of the Purgatorio with Manfred, who will have an opposite result, even though, uh, by some accounts, is was a much worse dude than Guido de Montefeltro. Something to keep in mind is that we again see the theme of unity slash plurality put together. Um, there are two people in one flame, like they are two sides of one coin. This is a corruption of the image of the Trinity, which is three circles, at least for Dante, um, three aspects that are actually one, like three perspectives on something. All correct, but also different in some way. All right, the reason why, literally speaking, Virgil speaks to Dante rather than, um, than uh, or excuse me, Virgil speaks to Ulysses rather than Dante is precisely because Virgil could speak ancient Greek just like Julius Caesar could speak ancient Greek. First century elite Romans could speak and would learn ancient Greek in school. And in fact, Julius Caesar, we think, um, said uh, his last words in Greek, not in, not in Latin. Instead of et tu brute, as you'll read in Shakespeare, uh, which means even you, Brutus, he said kaisu technai, we think. Even you, child, because Brutus was his son-in-law. Yes, question? Um, can Dante be burned by Potentially, potentially, he, can Dante be hurt by the things in hell. Well, he was pretty scared of the Malabranche, and he didn't go down onto the desert with the Sodomites precisely because it could burn him. So he is in danger. He is in danger. At the very least, he thinks he's in danger. Perhaps it's like a Matrix situation. Even if this is sort of a dream, if something happens to him within the dream, he will be harmed. That's the idea. In any case, Dante did not read Homer directly. He did not 
know ancient Greek. And so, it is the case that he learns about Virgil through two Roman poets. They are Horace as well as they are Virgil. Horace's Ars Poetica had a small account of what happened in the Odyssey, as well as Virgil's Aeneid included some, some Odysseic um, aspects. Remember that the, the Aeneid itself is split into 12 books. The first six books are often called the Odysseic half, when, where he's doing his wanderings, uh, his explorations. The second half is called the Iliadic half, because he has his a war against the Rutulians at Latium. Um, there is possibly a deeper way to read this as well. If we were to really, really, really look through it, one way is this. Perhaps it is the case that Dante cannot appreciate Ulysses for who he truly is because Ulysses has already been interpreted through a Roman lens. Now, something I'm just going to mention very quickly, because it is very deep, but we don't have a lot of time to think about it, at least today, so maybe we can get it to, to it for seminars, is that Dante sees things through his Italian-Roman lens. He is himself a descendant of the Romans. The Romans consider themselves descendants of Trojans. So perhaps he did not like Odysseus or Ulysses because... He is related to the people that destroyed uh, Dante's ancestors, thinking along those lines. The other way to look at it is this. Um, perhaps it is the case that Virgil does not entirely understand Ulysses, but only understands him in accordance with his Roman values, and then passes those on to Dante. So Dante is not saying that he understands Ulysses, but that Ulysses is understood within this Roman-Italian context. In any case... I'm going to keep moving on. So, Canto 26, just a couple things to tell you about it. It is very famous and very special, not only in the Inferno, but also in the Purgatorio and the Paradiso. You meet interesting people who have uh, unique gifts in each of these. So, Canto 26 here, we obviously meet Ulysses and Diomedes. We know that Ulysses was an excellent liar, was very good at speechcraft, was excellent with his words, but, at least in the context of the Inferno, his speech <laughs> leads people to destruction. Not only... Um, physical destruction, but potentially also to spiritual destruction because he leads them away from their responsibilities. Remember, part of the problem with what Ulysses does is that he moves away from his responsibilities in order to emphasize exploration of virtue and vice to know all things. It is his desire to know all things. Well, that's a Greek virtue. The Roman top virtue, or top way to live, or best way to live, is to uh, live with pietas, to be responsible to live a dutiful life. And so precisely what Ulysses does is leaves his duties behind in order to have maximum experience. Well, that's similar for uh, Dante to what it is that Epicurus does when he says that the soul is not immortal. He says, well, then let's just live for pleasure. Well, it's the same sort of thing here. This is a defective way of living according to Romans and Italians. And, well... Uh, Ulysses uses his words to convince his men to go against this responsibility, which possibly leads them, the, a good question often asked by students is, does he lead his men not only to death, but to hell? The idea is probably yes, he does lead them away from their responsibilities, and they choose to give up their responsibilities. It is very much possible that they could find themselves in the inferno. Um, and so he's sort of like an evil preacher in this case, and that is the way he is supposed to be looked. All right, look at in Purgatorio 26, we're going to meet a character named Arno Daniel. We'll also meet a guy named Guido Guinizelli, who uh, uh, helped to start the sweet new style, the Still Nuovo Dolce, or the Dolce Still Nuovo, that's what it goes by. Arno Daniel was a poet, and he will write in his original French-like language of Provençal. In Canto 26 of the Paradiso, we will run into the first poet, 
Adam. Why is he called the first poet? Well, Adam is the first man according to the Old Testament. And therefore, he's the first person ever to use words. And so, he was the one that gave the names to all things. And so, Cantos 26 are about makers of words. In the Inferno, in the Purgatorio, and in the Paradiso. And I'd say it's a tremendous mark of respect as well as denigration to put Ulysses in this canto alongside Adam. That said, uh, there's a similarity between them, but there's obviously a big difference. Adam is in heaven. Ulysses is obviously in hell. It's almost as if one used his words to destroy, like putting things in a flame, whereas one used his words to create, like using a flame to illuminate. It's almost as if words are like flames. If you use them appropriately, you can make things. You can make things. You can see things with them, like with a torch. But if you use them inappropriately, you can burn everything down, including your own life. That does seem to be the idea here. All right. Good, 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 good. I have here quoted the entirety of what Ulysses has to say. You've written on this twice now, though, and we just, we really don't have enough time to look through it. Now, that said, I'm going to give you some more information on Ulysses. So, Virgil. He gives us three reasons why Ulysses is in hell, besides these slightly deeper considerations we've had. One is very obvious, the Trojan horse. The Trojan horse was the idea of Ulysses, and the Trojan horse is what was used uh, in order to get into Troy and destroy the Trojans. In fact, the person who convinced the Trojans to take the Trojan horse and sign on will meet him in the 10th ditch of Circle 8 today, uh, a little bit later on. In any case, the Trojan horse as an idea was come up with by Ulysses. Remember that the Trojans are the ancestors of the Romans, the Romans are the ancestors of the Italians. Dante is an Italian, therefore he dislikes the Achaeans or the Greeks, and he likes the Trojans. When the Trojans get hurt, therefore, by the Greeks, then he thinks that that is a damnable offense by the Greeks. The second reason why Ulysses may be down here is because he tricked Achilleus into coming to the Trojan War in the first place. Recall that uh, Achilleus was dressed as a girl uh, on Skyros in the court of King Lycomedes, and Ulysses came up with this strategy to uh, put out some gifts, and in those gifts, gifts for girls, were also uh, a sword and a shield, and then he had a horn blown to say that there was an attack on the island, and so Achilleus, knowing who he was, he jumps up, grabs a sword, grabs a shield, reveals himself for who he is, goes to the Trojan War, ends up getting killed by Paris. That death is now put at the feet of Ulysses, Odysseus. Uh, I don't know that I'd necessarily agree with that, but that's uh, Virgil's slash Dante's re reasoning here. The third reason is uh, the stealing of the Palladium. Remember, there's a prophecy. As long as the statue of Pallas Athena, the Palladium, is not stolen from Troy, they will never fall. That was a symbol for, so long as wisdom... And the gift of wisdom is with the Trojans. They will never lose. Well, who went in and stole that palladium? Ulysses and Diomedes. They stole it from Troy, and then Troy fell, and, well, Dante is still fairly unhappy about that. In any case, another reason, and another thing that connects um, Adam, the first man, to Ulysses is the act of transgression. And you might consider the act of making something new an act of transgression. You say, Mr. Schmidt, what, what does it mean to transgress? That means to go beyond a boundary. So when you step out of line, when you step out of bounds, well, think about what Odysseus does. He literally steps out of bounds. He goes beyond the pillars of Heracles, of Hercules, and he goes beyond the known world. And when you go beyond the known world, you put yourself in new territory, and potentially uh, negative things can happen. How did Adam go beyond the known world. Well, recall he and Eve sort of eat this fruit, they learn this new thing, and then they get kicked out of the garden. And so there's some connection between communication, language, creating something new, 
and transgressing boundaries. You, you might even say that, I don't know, this is very deep, and I, I, I may, might have 10 seconds to comment on this. You might say that in order for new things to happen, old boundaries must always be broken. And so there's a real question about whether, even if you get punished for breaking certain rules or laws or customs, whether that's truly a bad thing, even if it seems a bad thing at first. And that is obviously how science works, too. You've got to do new things. You have to experiment in new ways to discover new things. Uh, it's a very deep question. In any case, got to keep moving. Got to keep moving. So, what is it specifically, besides those three specific instances that Ulysses does, that um, is dishonest with his men? Well, he uses his language to inspire, to motivate, to lead astray, and to refocus their perspectives. When you talk, you focus another person's consciousness on the articulations that are coming out of your mouth. In fact, when you read, you're doing that too. You're focusing your consciousness on a line of thought, a narrative, which is uh, very, I would say, psychologically interesting. In any case, what he has his men focus on is on the fact that they are not supposed to be animals. They are supposed to pursue virtue and experience and knowledge, and that all seems true. But what he leaves out is that they are pursuing knowledge and experience at the expense of their responsibilities. And so, a, a real question I would ask is, are they acting like humans, or are they acting like animals? Because there are plenty of male animals that will lie with female animals and create a pregnant female animal and then leave and go be male animals. In looking at things in that way, are these men, men who have responsibilities to their country and to their families, who just leave in order to do what they feel like doing? And is that a human thing or an animal thing to do? I think that's a perfectly good question to ask. And um, a question you really should put to Ulysses. Because if he gives up his responsibility, if he reneges on his responsibility, rather than upholding his responsibility, is he acting like a human at all? Um, or is he being like an animal? In any case, uh, just so that you know it, the Italian uh, term, which is two words, for this mad flight is the fole volo. We have the word folly. From Foley and uh, vo we actually have the word volley, like volleyball to hit something into the air from Volo. So a mad flight, like a flight of the imagination. Interesting. And just as Jerion was described with aquatic imagery, even though he's an aerial creature, he flies through the air, excuse me. Uh, um, Ulysses' sailing is described aerially as a mad flight, even though obviously he is sailing through uh, the waters. In fact, they made oars or made wings of their oars. All right, I know that we're riding fast. Thank you for focusing hard. All right, last bit. Ulysses goes, he transgresses the boundaries. He goes beyond the pillars of Hercules. That means northern Africa. He's heading towards the Atlantic Ocean. He then finds a mountain, the mountain of purgatory, but he does not quite get there, and he's drowned just before he makes it. This is, again, a very deep symbol. This uh, episode, how he dies, seems to connect very strongly with, um, A, his descent to the underworld, which also happened right after he left Circe's home, which is what he had done at the beginning of this speech. Also, remember the Bag of Winds episode from Aeolus. He was given a Bag of Winds, which, when he got almost home, the bag opened and shot him back to where he first came. And I wonder, or, or came from, Aeolus' island, and then didn't get the winds back. I wonder if part of what this is supposed to say is that inspiring, motivating false words, they get you going, but they don't get you where you're going. That it's like a false promise. 
And when you get to the end, when you get to what you thought you were aiming for, it's not actually there. And it's not what you expected. And I think there must be some element of that in this. And uh, there's more to dig out there, but we have to keep moving. All right. The next character we run into in Canto 27, who's also a deceitful counselor, is named Guido de Montefeltro. This is our, uh, we had our mythological example of this sin. Now we have our real example of this sin. Now, he's a really interesting character. You might think that he's just put in hell because he's a Ghibelline, and contra the political party of Dante de Guelph's. But it doesn't seem to be quite that simple. He does seem to have lived, lived a checkered life, a, a, a life full of dark spots. Well, so first and foremost, he was the captain general of the Ghibellines in Romagna. That's a local province very close to Florence. Um, at the end of his life, he's pretty smart. He realized he lived sort of a, a bad life. He knew that he was a deceitful, treacherous individual and that his soul was likely going to go to hell. So what did he do? He took the cloth and became a Franciscan monk. Pretty smart guy. It's like Pascal's Wager, which we'll learn about next year, where you might as well be a Christian, because if you're not, you'll go to hell. And if Christianity is incorrect and you're wrong, then you're just going to die, so so what? And that's Pascal's wager, uh, simply put, in any case. Well, so he seems to have taken this wager, and he said, okay, I'll become a monk. That said, Pope Boniface VIII, who we now know so well, and who Dante disparages so often, because he was a big part of Dante's being ex exiled, he goes to this captain general, and he says, well, could you maybe give up being a monk for a little while so you can help me with these strategies, these strategies? Apparently, uh, Boniface, had, uh, Boniface wanted to sack sack or put into effect some sacking of cities, and he needed the expertise of Guido de Montefeltro. Well, Guido says, well, the thing is, you know, I'm a monk now, and I don't want my soul going down to the inferno uh, to be damned for all eternity. And Pope Boniface tricks him in this way. He says, well, I'll give you a full pardon for whatever you are going to do. Now, what's the problem with that? You cannot repent of a sin you're going to do in the future. How repentance works, and this is just basic logic, is you do something bad, you feel bad about it, and then you turn from that. You convert from that. You, you uh, turn on your old self. You, you say, what I did was wrong. I do not want to be that person anymore. And you move forward. Well, that only works if you've done something in the past and learned from it. If you are planning to do something evil in the future, can you have already repented of it? No, of course not. That's not how it works. And so, when this man dies, apparently there is a drama between St. Francis, who comes down as an angel to take his soul to heaven, and a black cherubim. That's a devil. And the devil says, you can't take this guy. He, he thought that I was not a logician. In fact, I, I have it right here. Uh, oh, miserable me for I, how I started when he took hold of me and said, perhaps you did not think that I was a logician, because... One can't absolve a man who's not repented, and no one can repent and will at once. The law of contradiction won't allow it. That's actually a law that um, Aristotle came up with. And he said, if, if you believe that something can be A and not A at the same time, you're no better a thinker than a bush. Bushes obviously don't have brains, so they're not very good thinkers. In any case, the idea is that he was given pardon in an inappropriate way. You cannot pardon somebody for something, for a, an evil act they plan to do. I cannot pardon you. For if you're planning to, say, steal a uh, slushie from the 7-Eleven later, you can, and, well, I can't pardon anybody, but, say, perhaps a priest could pardon you after you've done it when you feel bad. Nobody can pardon you beforehand. In any case, that is why this man is taken 
down to hell. We will see a very similar drama in Canto 3 of the Purgatorio with Manfred, but we'll see an opposite conclusion. And so look out for that. All right, we're moving on to the schismatics. We're going to go very quickly through them. All right, we meet three schismatics. Now, the first two are the two founders of the Muslim faith. The first, Muhammad, he's the actual founder from the 7th century and the 6th century um, CE. And then his son-in-law who married his daughter Fatima named Ali. Now, Dante believes something that is not the actual history of the Muslim faith. He believed that, and I don't know how this, <laughs> this story got around, but this is the story he believed, that Muhammad had been a cardinal in the Catholic Church who had had a chance to become Pope. And had not been elected Pope, and so instead of remaining a cardinal, he started his own faith, and then hundreds of years later had a billion people following him. Now, that's not the true story, but that is the true story of what Dante thought was the true story. There's a difference. In any case, Ali was his son-in-law. And because of how succession passed to Ali rather than to another man, I'm not a big expert on how that worked, the, um, the Muslim faith split into two, and it is to this day still split between Shiites and Sunnis. Now, the third person that we see is Bertrand de Born. Bertrand de Born was a poet who supposedly sowed discord between, uh, I believe it was King Henry II and the young Prince Henry, his son, and they ended up committing civil war against each other. Uh, what makes these people schismatics? What is a schismatic? A schismatic is a sower of discord. Somebody who produces division between groups of people. And so the idea behind Muhammad is that he produced a division between the Christians and the Muslims. Ali, that he produced an internal division within the Muslim faith itself. And Bertrand de Born, who carries his own head around like the first headless horseman, that he produced a political and familial division. And so he's even worse. And so Muhammad has, um, and the, the punishment of the schismatics is rather, uh, is rather gruesome. They have to run around a track, and they get cut open at the beginning of it by a demon. Um, the Muhammad character, uh, chin down to pelvis, with his guts hanging out, so it's a pretty rude betrayal of him by Dante. That said, Dante thought he was a schismatic, even though he's technically wrong. Uh, Ali is cut from his head down to his chin, and you should just imagine sort of how gruesome that would be to have your head cut open. And then Bertrand de Born doesn't have his head. He's like a fully headless Nick from <laughs> the Harry Potter, uh, making a reference to nearly headless Nick. In any case, that is what happens with the schismatics, but that's all you need to know about them because we have to move on. All right, we move on to the final ditch. Ditch 10 out of 10 in circle 8. This is where the falsifiers are. There are four types of falsifiers. There are alchemists, impersonators, counterfeiters, and liars. And we have uh, pretty interesting versions of each. Each one of these characters has a slightly different punishment. So, alchemists. What do they do? They falsify metal. There are two things they claim they can do that they can't. They can turn crude metal into gold. And so they sound sort of like a used car salesman. Somebody who claims they can do something that they can't. This car is better than new. It's like, there's no such thing as better than new. And so, no, no, it's not. Um, the second thing they claim they could do is produce the aqua vitae. That's the water of life. A liquid that can make you immortal. And if you ever read Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, which was originally called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, the Philosopher's Stone is something that the alchemists claimed they could create, from which a liquid was created that if you drink it, you became immortal. 
And so it's sort of like the ultimate, uh, the ultimate uh, um, uh, double cross, right? Saying that you can make someone immortal. That's what everybody wants. That's what Gilgamesh wanted uh, in the Gilgamesh epic. That's what Achilles wanted in the Iliad. That seems to be even what uh, Dante is pursuing here. <clears throat> and yet, we have not yet found some simple liquid that you can just drink in order to make yourself immortal, even though you might even say that science is a process by which we attempt to extend our lives on indefinitely. It's like we're still trying to do this, but we have. In any case, what's the punishment? Constant itching and scratching at leprous scabs. Itching all over constantly. And that's terrible. And the alchemists we see, who you don't need to know, are Griffolino, D'Arezzo, and Capocchio. All right, good. The impersonators. I only want to tell you about the impersonators because one has sort of a gross story that you might say you about, though if you've ever read the Old Testament or remember some of your Greek mythology from last year, yeah, this is not so uncommon, especially if you think about Lot or uh, Oedipus. But um, the two impersonators we see are Gianni Skiki and Mira. They are afflicted with madness. In fact, we see Gianni Skiki jump on somebody and start to bite them, sort of like a dog. Mira, she's down here because she impersonated a woman that her father was going to lay with because she had incestuous desire for him. So she lay with her father intentionally while impersonating someone else. Here's a picture of her. Ew. Ew, Mira. Yuck. In any case, uh, that's why I include that for you. You do need to know about Mira. Let's keep moving. All right. The last two people we need to see are a counterfeiter as well as a liar. The counterfeiter's name is Master Adam. Master Adam uh, was apparently somebody who minted coins. What it means to mint a coin, and this is actually a very sophisticated process, is what counts as currency or not. I mean, even these days, we, we have non-physical currencies. We have Bitcoin and things like that. Well, basically, he had the trust of everybody. He was supposed to take gold and melt it down and make coins out of it. Well, what happens if you keep making coins, but you don't make them out of gold? You make them out of part dross, that means a useless substance, and part gold. Well, they become less valuable you still sell them for the same value. So you can see that he's counterfeited um, what is actually supposed to happen. In fact, he got caught doing this and then burnt at the stake. People care about their money and making sure that money is as valuable as it's supposed to be. In fact, uh, something you might not know is that our currency's value changes every day. And you can compare it to the value of the currencies of other countries. And if our, the value of our currency goes way, way down, that's called inflation. And then the money you have becomes less worth, uh, it becomes worthless, essentially. In fact, if you go to Venezuela now, supposedly you can walk around with a wheelbarrow full of cash, and that's just as much money as you need to get, like, a can of beans. Something like that. And that day, does happen to currency. When the faith in your economic system decreases, your money goes down in worth. You can buy less with your money. That's why people encourage you to, say, go to countries that have weaker currencies than ours, and then your money goes farther. And so that's a really good reason to, say, go somewhere like South America or Southeast Asia. Um, because you can buy a lot more with the money that you have there because of how currency exchanges work. And in any case, so uh, something to keep in mind for when you travel. Second person here, Sinon. Sinon, we remember from the Aeneid Book 2 last year. He was the naked slave next to the Trojan horse who was sent by the Greeks to convince the Trojans that the Trojan horse was a holy object, holy to Minerva, that needed to be taken into Troy. Now, he said, if you hurt this horse, you will all die. In actuality, had the Trojans hurt the horse, they would have killed a bunch of important Greeks, and they would not have fallen. That said, they had lost the palladium. That, that means they had lost the good of the intellect, 
or, 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 the, or they had lost their capacity for wisdom. Athena had turned against them. Those are all ways of saying the same thing. They took the Trojan horse into their city, and we know what happened from there. Troy fell, and so Sanan is a big-time liar, and Dante does not like him because, again, he traces his ancestry back to the Romans, who traced their ancestry back to the Trojans. Very long memory here. Uh, and apparently what Sinon's punishment is is that he's afflicted with terrible fever at all times, which has got to be terrible. And uh, Master Adam's got kind of a nasty punishment. He's afflicted with dropsy, which means he has fluid that's between his like skin and the muscle beneath it, which means he can't put pressure on any part of his body. He can't move because when he does, he's put into agonizing pain. And so, actually, he's sitting there stationary, immobile, but Sinon starts to talk smack to him, and then he punches Sinon in the face, and they have this ugly little argument with each other. This ugly little argument that Dante watches, because he's having a good time. He's like, look at these guys yelling at each other. It's awful what they're saying. And Virgil actually ends up getting mad at him, because he thinks that in watching something in a in watching a vulgar display like that, Dante is denigrating himself. And an example I gave earlier, I actually wasn't allowed to watch professional wrestling when I was growing up because that's what my parents thought about it. They thought that if I watched professional wrestling, people would be like, do you know what The Rock is cooking? That would in some, that would in some way worsen my character. These days, your parents might believe that about certain things too. You might not be allowed to say watch UFC fighting or something like that because they think that it will damage you in some way. And well, that's, um, that's an interesting opinion to have about uh, watching certain things. Perhaps that's why we don't uh, read every book or watch every TV show. I don't know. In any case, gotta keep moving. Let's meet these giants and descend down to Circle Nine and the fourth uh, river, Cositis. Okay, I'm gonna read this very quickly. Just as, and I want you all to pretend we're looking into the distance. And while we look into the distance, we start to see something very tall. And we're all normal people. We live in a city, we see something tall, it's probably a what? A building of some sort, a tower. So just as whenever mists begin to thin, and Escondido is a good place to give this lecture because we often do have mist, when gradually vision finds the form that in the vapor thickened air was hidden, so I pierced through the dense and darkened fog. So it's looking, it's kind of seeing things. This is also a metaphor for how you come to learn things. At first things are sort of vague in general, but then you get to the specifics of them. This is the process of learning. As I drew always nearer to the shore, my error fled me, my terror grew. That means the better he gets to know what's in front of him, the more threatening he realizes how it is. If you've ever seen the uh, Lord of the Ring, the Fellowship of the Ring, you might remember Aragorn talking to Frodo, and he says, are you afraid yet? And uh, Frodo says, no. And he says, you would be if you knew what was chasing you. And that's that sort of moment for him right here. For as on its round wall, Monte Reggiani is crowned with towers, so an image of towers, so there towered here above the bank that runs around the pit with half their bulk, the terrifying giants. So their tower size only from the waist up. We can't even see half of them, and they're this giant. The terrifying giants, whom Jove still menaces from heaven when he sends his bolts of thunder down upon them. Now, something interesting about Jove still menacing from heaven. Jove is another name for Jupiter, which is another name for essentially Zeus. Uh, a good question that a student asked me recently was, how was Capaneus fulminated by Jove if Jove doesn't exist for Dante? There's a Christian god, but not an ancient Greek or Roman god named Jupiter or Zeus. 
And I think that's an interesting question you could ask here. How is it that Jupiter still menaces from heaven with bolts of thunder if he doesn't exist? Well, it seems to be that Dante is doing what's called being syncretic. He is combining images of Jupiter and Zeus together with the Christian god, who is also known to uh, have access to thunderbolts um, and to make the clouds rise at times in the Old Testament. I have to find specific passages for you, but that sort of imagery is common. All right, in any case, let's keep moving. The giants. How do they first appear? As we said, as towers, but as we get closer to them, as we get closer to the concept, we start to understand what it actually is. Now, they're very, very large, <clears throat> but Satan will be even larger than they are. Just as much larger as they are from Dante, or than Dante, so will Satan be larger than they are. So, uh, compare yourself to the size of a skyscraper, and then compare a skyscraper to the size of a skyscraper that would be that much bigger than the skyscraper. That's how big Satan is. So, he is as much bigger than a skyscraper, than a skyscraper is bigger than you. So, that's tremendous. In any case, they are denied almost the entirety of the good of the intellect. So, something I've been saying in sort of a crude fashion throughout the uh, course of the Inferno is that the souls down in hell are denied the good of the intellect. Now, that does not mean that they cannot think entirely, but it means that no good fruit can come from their thought. No good action. Why? They don't have bodies and they're not alive. And also, uh, sometimes they cannot see the truth. They can only think in a way that justifies their punishment, which is fruitless. In any case, these guys are represented as <clears throat> sort of voiceless, grunting monsters who are chained. And something interesting about them being chained is Dante explicitly says, I don't know what creature chained these giants, or the biggest creatures ever to have existed, who chained them. Perhaps they chained themselves. Perhaps they were chained by the will of God. I don't know whether they were physically whether that was physically done or not, but I think that is an interesting way to think. In any case, <clears throat> they will sort of, these giants will growl, they will shake the earth in a Poseidon, Neptune sort of way. Uh, one of them will speak gobbledygook to us. He says, Raphael, my Ameka Zabi Ami, which looks like Hebrew, but it's gobbledygook. We know it's gobbledygook because it's from Nimrod. Nimrod is the um, <clears throat> supposed giant who created the Tower of Babel, um, and I'll talk about him in a moment. But, how do they prefigure Satan besides just their size? They are voiceless. Satan will be voiceless. I'll explain what that means when we get to him in our next lecture. They're also immobile. They are. They cannot move. They, one of them, Antaeus, he can speak. None of the others can. And he can slightly move and contort himself. But he can't move much. It's almost like the closer we get to the source of evil, the less intelligible and the less powerful it is. We're seeing sort of a very Christian message come here. That the deepest, worst sinners are the least capable of motion or voice. They are denied the most human attributes, the most divine attributes, yes. Where did the giants come from? The giants come uh, from several sources. There's uh, one giant will come from the Old Testament, Nimrod. He's traditionally considered a giant. We'll see uh, several other from Greek sources. We'll hear about Briarius and Typhon. Those were uh, uh, giants who fought against and fought with the gods. We'll talk about Antaeus, who comes from Heracles' story. A lot of them come from Greek mythology. In fact, I'll let's get to them now. Let's get to them now. So some specific giants that we see, and I found that students are often interested in giants. I'm also sort of interested in giants. I mean, they're amazing, amazing creatures. Yes? Goliath is not there. Of all, yeah, you know, that's funny that Goliath wouldn't actually be there. Of all, of all the giants that could have been. In any case, let me explain these ones that we do see. 
So the first two are F-E-L-T's and Otis. You actually hear about them in the Iliad. They supposedly put Ares in a bottle at some point, and they mounted. They took two mountains, supposedly, Mount Peleon and Mount Osa, put them on top of each other and assaulted Olympus. And this is the so-called Gigantomachy, like the Titanomachy. It is the war of the gods versus the giants. And supposedly, if the giants had had access to Antaeus at that time, uh, if he had been born from Earth, from Gaia, she was the mother of giants, um, they might have won. But they didn't, so sorry, Ephialtes and Otis. In fact, Ephialtes and Otis are these two right here. That's Ephialtes, the one with his arm up on his face. All right, Nimrod. Nimrod comes from the Old Testament. He supposedly had this plan to create a giant structure that would join heaven and earth to make man as great as God. And that's the same idea behind Ephialtes and Otis. But all he managed to do was, in trying to build this tower, make God angry. And God then destroyed the tower, and ah, uh, yes, he actually split man's language from one into many so that confusion entered the world. Sort of like how Zeus threw delusion down from his head onto the, uh, the world of man in the Iliad. Briarius. Dante asks to see Briarius, and why wouldn't you? Fifty heads, one hundred arms. He is the god, or the god giant, supposedly, that Thetis used to unbind Zeus from the machinations of Poseidon, Athena, and Hera. So he is incredible, this Briarius, supposedly. Dante doesn't actually get to see him. I think the reason he doesn't get to see him is the same reason that he doesn't get to talk to Ulysses. Briarius exists in the Iliad. Dante did not get to read the Iliad, so he does not get to see Briarius. And then, of course, the most famous of these giants is Antaeus. Antaeus is famous because... It was one of Heracles' twelve labors to have to fight a giant who could not be defeated because so long as he stood on the earth, he, he derived power from his mother Gaia. So what uh, Heracles did, which, you know, mythologically I think works, is he picked him up off the ground and slammed him back into it, head first, and killed him. I'll show you a picture of Antaeus in a moment. Here's one of them. Let me just show you this one, because it's so awkward. It's so interesting. This is by William Blake. I know. I, I just can't really stop looking at it. But you see how oddly he's contorted? I wondered why. And I, I think the reason is actually because of how it's described. And Virgil, when he felt himself caught up, called out to me, come here so I can hold you. So, so Dante's like, thank you. Then made one bundle of himself and me. Again, that unity and plurality thing. Just as Garacinda seems when seen beneath the leaning side, when clouds run past, past, excuse me, and it hands down as if about to crash, so did Antaeus seem to me as I watched him bend over me, a moment when I'd have preferred to take some other road. But gently on that deep that swallows up both Lucifer and Judas, he placed us, nor did he so bent over stay there long. But like a mast above a ship, that's another aquatic metaphor right there, or excuse me, simile, he rose. So... Antaeus, or Antaeus, picks up Dante and Virgil, deposits them in Circle 9 along the Cassitis. Good work today.